Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to uh, look at the legal system and you? Special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Last year, more than 200,000 felony and misdemeanor criminal cases were filed in Missouri's courts. That averages out to nearly 1,800 for every county. That number might surprise a lot of our listeners in outstate counties, but it's driven up by the number of charges filed in our more heavily populated metropolitan areas. Now, most of us have some familiarity with the criminal justice system uh, because of our favorite television shows, whether they're dramas or whether they're so-called reality shows. Either way, those shows condense a case into an hour-long program that really doesn't depict everything that goes into a criminal case. So today we're going to talk about how the system really handles criminal charges. And we're going to take it from a different angle this time. Most of the TV shows, even the true crime reality shows, focus on the prosecution side of things. So today we're going to ask you to think about what happens if you are charged with a crime. Now, most of us won't be, of course, but we might know of someone who has faced or is facing a criminal charge. Right, Bob. We all believe we know what our rights are. But what if you or a loved one is arrested tomorrow? Do you really know your rights and how the criminal justice system works? Today, we're going to learn what defending yourself against criminal charges is really all about. We're going to be talking with defense lawyer Erica Minerich today. She's with the Springfield law firm of Carver, Canton, and Minerich, and she primarily represents people charged in federal and state courts with crimes. She's been honored twice by the Missouri Bar Foundation for her excellence in both trial work and her advocacy in appeals cases. Erica, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. We want to start off today with, I guess, the beginning. What happens when you're arrested? Sure. So I will say that a lot of times people will call us before they're ever arrested because a prosecutor may have a police officer go talk to an individual who might be suspected of a crime. And so sometimes people will hire us before they've ever been arrested because they want to know what their rights are as to whether or not they have to answer questions from the police. And so a lot of times people have interactions with police before a full arrest. So for example, it can be when you're out walking and a police officer wants to stop you or you're driving and a police officer wants to stop you. That's technically a seizure of your person. It's not a full-blown custodial arrest though. And so the reason why that's important is if an officer is going to arrest you without a warrant, that's oftentimes how it will start. Maybe you're out driving and you get pulled over because the officer has reasonable suspicion maybe to think you're committing a crime. The officer can do just a brief investigatory stop to see if basically crime could be afoot. So they might stop you and ask you to identify yourself and ask you some basic questions about what you're doing. And if there are some facts about the circumstances that the officer's perceiving that make the officer believe that this person is committing or just committed an offense, the officer then, the reasonable suspicion he had for the stop could develop into probable cause, and then they can arrest you. So that's sort of the standard. The officer has to have a reasonable belief that you've committed a crime or that you have just committed a crime to arrest you without a warrant. The other way it happens is sometimes an officer will be investigating a crime. Maybe some witnesses came forward or something like that. And when the officer's investigating, 
they'll submit a probable cause statement to a prosecutor and the prosecutor will read it and decide if there are enough facts to warrant filing charges. And if the prosecutor thinks it's more likely than not that this person committed a crime and they think they can make a submissible case, they will file the charges, the court will issue an arrest warrant, and then the police will go out and arrest you. So there's the two types of arrests. There's the warrantless arrest that requires the officer to have probable cause, or there's the arrest after charges have been filed, where essentially a probable cause determination was already made when the prosecutor submitted the probable cause statement to the judge who signed the arrest warrant. Is it always the judge's decision when it comes to probable cause and the prosecutors? Or, you know, I, I've heard a lot about grand juries. Do they play a role in deciding whether or not someone could be arrested? Yes. So that's an interesting question. So in federal court, everyone has the right to a grand jury indictment. So let's say the prosecutors in federal court thought you were particularly dangerous. They can file a complaint that has to be signed by the judge to decide that there's probable cause to go out and arrest you. But at some point, they have to take their case to the grand jury. And it can be about 30 people who have to decide if it's more likely than not that you committed this crime. And then they will return a true bill and the case will proceed by indictment. In the state system, some of the jurisdictions, some of the counties do have a grand jury, but a lot of them don't, or if they do have one, they choose not to use it. And what happens in those cases is that the prosecutor will file the charge, and that's with that probable cause statement to the judge. There's the arrest warrant signed, the person's arrested. We start, we have associate circuit courts in Missouri, and we have circuit courts in Missouri. And when it proceeds by way of not using the grand jury, a person is charged, they go to associate court, they get to have something called a preliminary hearing, where a judge listens to the evidence and decides if it's more likely than not that this person committed this felony to bind it over to circuit court. So if you're not using a grand jury to make that probable cause determination that the case should proceed, then you would be using a judge in the associate circuit court to be making that decision. So in both ways, either a judge or a grand jury, there is someone who has that checks and balances on the prosecutor's uh, decision to bring forth the case. Let me go back to the very beginning, Erica. You know, some people, a lot of people don't have a whole lot of, interre- of interaction with the police department. And when a policeman shows up on their porch or when they get pulled over on a, a traffic stop or whatever, they don't know what they're being pulled over for. And a policeman comes up and starts asking them questions. Do they have to answer the questions at that point? What Can you give us a description of how best to handle a situation uh, where you don't know what you've done, if anything, but all of a sudden there's a policeman who's asking you questions? What do I do? If a police officer were to pull you over and ask for things like your identification, if you're driving, obviously they can ask for an insurance card, you have to provide your identifying information. Not all states require that. But Missouri does require that if an officer demands that you give them identifying information, just like your name, you have to give them your name. And if the officer is asking you other questions, you can say, and you should say to the officer, officer, I don't wish to answer any questions. And you can say, officer, am I free to leave? And if you are, the officer will let you. And if 
If the officer says no, then you should continue to sit there. I always think that people should be polite to the police because a lot of times the officer is just going to take the information you gave, run your name. If they pulled you over for a traffic citation, perhaps they'll give you the citation. If you're polite, maybe they'll just give you a warning. But you don't ever have to consent to a search of your vehicle. You have the right to say no. I think people should say no. I don't see the reason why people need to, why people need to consent to searches of their vehicles just because the police ask. If the police have probable cause to believe that there's something in your car, they're allowed to search it without a warrant. That's an exception to our warrant requirement if you're traveling in a vehicle. If they have probable cause and you're in a vehicle, they can search your car. So if they ask you, you can say no, and I think you should say no. The only other thing I was going to say is I had failed to mention that when the officers have an arrest warrant, they can come into your home and arrest you. But if they don't have an arrest warrant, but they do believe you've committed a crime, for example, out on the street, if they, if they believe that you've committed a crime, if they have probable cause to believe that, they can arrest you on the street. But they cannot come into your home and arrest you. The Supreme Court has made a really stern line on that. They need an arrest warrant to come into your home to do that. When you said a minute ago, you recommend people say no when they, they, the, the officers want to search your car or ask you some additional questions. What what does that do in terms of relationship with the officer? Does that raise that officer's suspicions and make it even tougher on the motorist or the person who is being stopped? I think it depends on the officer. I think if you just say, officer, I don't consent to any searches, I think a lot of times the officers will just say okay and send you on your way. If they had some other reason to suspect perhaps that you were carrying drugs or something like that, then they can call a canine to come out and walk around your vehicle and sniff it. And if the canine alerts, then they'll have their probable cause and they'll they'll search your car. So, I mean, I, I, I suppose if you're truly not doing anything wrong and you're convinced that nobody else has borrowed your car and done anything wrong with it, it might be easier just to say, yes, go ahead and search. But I always advise against it. I think that most of the time the police will just tell you, you can go along. Okay. When is the time then to call you? <laughs> I think that anytime a police, truthfully, anytime a police officer contacts someone to ask questions, I always think that the people should have said, officer, I'd like to consult with an attorney first. We get people who call all the time who say an officer called me and they are accusing me, for example, let's say of like a sex crime and they want me to take a lie detector test. So I set up a lie detector test for next week. And I'm like, what? wait, wait, let's, we're going to, then what we do is we call the officer and say, wait, we're going to talk to this person. We're not saying they won't take the lie detector test because sometimes we do have clients do that, but it's always best to talk with the attorney, let them ask you some experienced questions before you just go and start talking to a police officer. Because to be, to be honest, sometimes things that you say you might not even think that they sound bad the way you say it, but I could hear the way you tell me series of events took place. And to me, it doesn't sound very good, even if you really didn't do anything wrong. So I think it's always best to talk to a lawyer before you go and speak with the police. If you have been arrested, what all can the police do to you once you've been arrested? You know, how long can they hold you? How many 
questions can they ask you? Can they take specimens from you? What are are there limits there? And where basically where are your rights when it comes to complying once you've been arrested? Sure. So it depends if they arrested you with a warrant or without a warrant. So if they arrested you with a warrant, then you will be held until you post bond if judge put on the arrest warrant that there was a bond. Sometimes they do a thing called a court-only bond where you have to appear in court and then the, the judge will decide. So basically you could be held indefinitely if there was an actual arrest warrant. But there's a rule in Missouri, a 24-hour detention rule. If you are arrested without a warrant, then you have to be released after 24 hours unless you become charged. So within that 24-hour window, the prosecutor has to go ahead and charge you. And if they don't, then you have to be released. And that's a, a statute in Missouri. And so after you are arrested, they'll fingerprint you, they'll search you. If you were, for example, arrested on the street and you had a vehicle, they may tow the vehicle and do an inventory search of your vehicle. So basically, you will be searched, your property will be inventoried, you will be fingerprinted, and yes, like a, a swab of your DNA may be taken. Is that something that they do here in Missouri with everyone who's arrested? So they do the fingerprints of everyone, but not the swab, not the DNA swab. And if, if you turn out to be totally innocent, they release you. What happens to those records? The fingerprints? What that's happens? a really good, that's a really good question because we have people who call all the time wanting to have arrest records expunged. Recently, Missouri overhauled its expungement system for people who have pled guilty and have those criminal records. There is a special statute, I believe, for the DWI arrest expungements, but I'm not sure that most arrests can be expunged. I think most of them will still show up. I know, for example, in my federal cases, I get a printout, my client's criminal history, and I will often see a lot of arrests that they had. And then I can see, you know, within a year that the case was dismissed, but their record clearly shows when they were arrested, that it was put into the system. And that even though they were cleared of those charges, for whatever reason, maybe they went to trial and won, or maybe they, the prosecutor decided to dismiss for whatever reason, but the case would be dismissed. Yet those arrest records were still showing up. You can get a background check from the highway patrol, submit your fingerprints and get a background check. So if you wanted to see if like a prior arrest or something was showing up on your record, you could do that through the highway patrol. Interesting. We might have to do that as an experiment, Bob. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Erica, I wanted to ask you too about the photos, the famous mugshots that, you know, always then appear in the paper or on the news, depending on the fame or notoriety of the severity of the case and who's involved. I know in recent years, too, that I've seen where outfits go and take those images and then seek funding from people, payment from people to not publicize those on the Internet. Uh, is that something that you've run into or had any clients who've, who've experienced that? Or is there any way to protect against that, you know, possible ar arrest where nothing came of it, but now this mugshot is out there for others to find on the Internet? I have had clients complain to me that they were contacted by people who basically said, you can pay me money and we'll take those down off the Internet. 
So I've heard the complaints. I don't know if any of my clients have ever paid the money. Basically, honestly, my focus was more on defending them against the charges. And so I told them that I, I didn't really basically know how to help them, that if they paid them, it might work, it might not work. But my focus was on their actual criminal case. Um, and so I, I think I've only had like two people bring that up to me. So it doesn't seem like it's been much of a big deal. Yeah, but, but it does raise an issue. If somebody does that, could I have a civil action against them? This is bas- this basically blackmail or charge them with a criminal charge of some kind? I don't know. That's a good question. Because if they were charged with a crime and all you're doing is posting a photo from them being charged, I mean, if, I guess if they were arrested and released, that might be different than if they were arrested and then charges within that 24 hours were actually brought. But I don't, I don't know. I haven't actually looked to see like if an extortion statute would match those facts. Yeah. I've never actually checked that. Yeah. People are arrested on television. The television cops are usually very good about reading the Miranda rights to the person being arrested. That's always, that's always shown anymore on TV. Give us a little bit of background on where the Miranda rights came from and when, when they should be uh, spoken to a person who's been arrested. Sure. So Miranda writes really an officer anytime that they sees a person should read them. That's not required every time you seize them. But if an officer wanted to just be careful, the smart thing to do is just read a person their rights. And the truth of the matter is it's smart because people ignore it all the time and talk and make incriminating statements. So really, I hate to say it, but it seems like reading people the Miranda rights doesn't really do much. So um, <laughs> I think that an officer who's being smart should just go ahead and read the rights. But if you're going to, if a person is not free to go, um, and so they're in custody, if you're going to do a custodial interrogation, interrogate them in custody, you are required to read them the rights. And it's basically the rights that you do see on TV, that they have the right to remain silent, that anything they say can and will be used against them, that they have a right to an attorney, they can consult with an attorney before making any statements. And I mean, that's basically it. But I'm always surprised how many people will call me to tell me they need a lawyer. And then they will tell me that they spent an hour talking to the police. And I'm thinking, why didn't you call before you talked to the police for an hour? So those are the Miranda rights and people should invoke those. Is it called waiving your rights if you decide to go ahead and have a conversation with the police or to not ask for an attorney right off the bat? Yes, that's called waiving your right and waiving your rights to counsel to not make any statements to the police. And most officers will have that done in writing because later if a person if a if a person who's charged with a crime a defendant is claiming that they they weren't read their rights, an officer is going to be on a lot stronger footing if they had the defendant actually sign a waiver. And so I, I find that in most cases they do that. If I'm if I'm real smart and somebody's going to arrest me for something I know I did, should I just go ahead as soon as he shows up and says, yes, I did it, I did such and such and such and such, will that get me off the hook because I do it before I'm being asked, uh, I, I'm being given my Miranda rights or before I'm asked whether I want to waive them? Should I just blab right off the top right, right away? Does that do me any good? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> There's no loophole, Bob. <laughs> There's no loophole. Just, just don't talk. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why everyone wants to just, like, tell the police everything. Just be quiet. You have the right to be quiet. Use it. Call your lawyer and then tell your lawyer everything. Then they can help you decide the best way to proceed. And that's actually why I always tell people, if an officer calls and wants to talk to you, even if you don't think you've done anything wrong, just call the lawyer right away. Because the truth is, maybe you have done something wrong. And it's possible if we're just talking like real world here and not constitutional law, if you might have done something wrong, if an if an attorney gets involved sooner before you're charged, we might be able to fin- figure out a way to minimize what, what charges might come down later. You're right. So perhaps someone's accusing you of a crime and maybe you did do a little bit of that, but not exactly the extent to which you're being accused of. If we can talk to the police ahead of time or talk to the prosecutor ahead of time, perhaps you'll still get charged, but maybe you'll get charged with a misdemeanor and not a felony because maybe your conduct isn't as egregious as you know the witness said it was. Also, sometimes I will have clients, I will hire a person who um, is licensed to do the, the polygraphs, the lie detector tests. And if my client passes a private polygraph, then a lot of times I'll tell the officer, my client will take a polygraph. And these are pretty serious sexual cases a lot of times. And then they'll, either the police will say, oh, we know who that polygraph examiner is and they're so well-respected, we'll just use their results. Or they'll say, okay, we'll, we'll do the exam and then they'll do their own. But I already know that my client passed because I already did all of that, having my own expert come and do it before sending them to the police to have a polygraph. And so then a lot of times they don't get charged because then they passed a polygraph exam. But that's why people should hire lawyers because we we know the types of things to do on the front end to hopefully minimize damage to you later. What is the role of a polygraph in this process? Because it's my understanding polygraph tests are not admissible in court. Is that true? That's true. And then so they're not. So why why the emphasis on even doing a polygraph test? There's levels of discretion in a criminal case. A police officer has discretion on whether or not they're going to bring a case to the prosecutor. And then a prosecutor has discretion as to whether or not they're actually going to charge a person with a crime. And so a, if, if you're dealing with a police officer who's very experienced, uh, very well respected, and if you say to this officer, you know, who's been doing this job for a long time, hey, my client didn't do it. My client is willing to take a polygraph exam. And if my client passes, then a lot of times that very experienced officer will tell the prosecutor, hey, you know, we got this complaint, um, perhaps of like, let's say molestation, and the person is swearing they didn't do it, and their lawyer let them take a polygraph by one of our Missouri State Highway Patrol polygraph examiners, and they passed with flying colors. Then if there's really no other evidence, because in a lot of sex cases, there's no evidence other than a person saying that something happened. There's no physical evidence. There's just, it's he said, she said. And so if the person has passed a polygraph, a lot of times they'll say, well, since it is he said, she said, and he passed the polygraph, we're not going to destroy his life by bringing these terrible charges, you know, where the whole community is going to find out and he's going to be arrested and, and all of these things because he took a polygraph and he passed. So there's really no evidence. So 
it's not admissible in court, but it is an investigative tool that the police can use to decide if they want to press charges or not. And then the prosecutor can also consider that and decide if he or she wishes to bring charges. Going back to if you're being held or you've been arrested, you know, in TV and movies, you you always get that one phone call. Is that a right that exists or is that a guarantee that you have so that you can call your lawyer as you recommend to do before you answer any questions? Or is that something that is just made for TV? I believe that the statute, I would have to double check this, but I'm pretty, pretty sure the statute in Missouri that talks about the 24-hour detention says that you are supposed to have access to counsel during that time. And so I don't know like if they actually have to let you make a phone call, but you're supposed to have access. And so I'm sure every jail does that a little differently. Each jail has so many different policies. Well, I'm sure you've heard recently in Kansas City, female attorneys cannot visit their clients basically if they have an underwire bra because it makes the metal detectors go off. Each jail is super different, but they're supposed to let you have access to counsel. I guess if I were arrested, I, I, my, my question was, okay, I have a right to call an attorney, but who do I call? Uh, you know, if I have a family attorney who's written up the will or something like that, is that the person to call or, or who do I know who to call? Because a lot of people don't have any relationship with lawyers unless something like this comes up. So how do they decide to call somebody like you? That's a really good question because nowadays everyone can have a really nice website. And so if you just go off of websites, you may end up with a lawyer who can make a really nice website, but isn't a good fit for you. I think that getting referrals from like your family law attorney is not a bad idea because they know the people in the area, they interact with them. But I think the important thing is to meet with the lawyer, either in person or have a nice long phone interview. I think it's really important for people to feel like their lawyer's listening to them and paying attention to them and cares. I often can be a little bit on the overly compassionate side. And so I stress that a lot. I know that I can be a little over the top in that area. But I do think it's really, really important for someone to feel like they can trust their lawyer. So if you're calling your lawyer all the time and not getting a callback, and I mean, we have to be realistic. Lawyers are in court a lot. And so they can't just call you back within two or three hours. I usually try to call everyone back within 24 hours. All my clients have my cell phone number as well. So they can text me if they need to, if something comes up or if there's a weekend and something comes up, they can always call me. But I think it's just important to meet with them, kind of get a feel for if this is a person that you think is going to listen to you and care about you and be there for you. And once you've decided who your lawyer will be, I know that you've highlighted some of the things that a lawyer might do for you, but what are some additional or the next steps that a lawyer would do once you've either been arrested or charged with a crime? Sure. So if you're in jail... Usually the attorney will try to get you bonded out. So a, a motion for bond reduction, you know, let's say it's $100,000 cash. They might try to ask the judge to convert it to surety. So you'd only have to post 10% of that with a bonds person and you can get bonded out. A lot of times that's the immediate action. Everyone wants to get out of jail, which makes sense. The next step is 
we go to court, we have something called arraignment, where you just basically say, judge, I read to my client the charges. So you don't need to re read those out loud in front of everybody in the courtroom. We'll waive formal reading of those. And we enter a plea of not guilty. And now if it's a felony, we'll tell the judge that we want to set it for a preliminary hearing. That's that hearing that we're going to have since we didn't have a grand jury. And now the prosecutors have to give us discovery, the, the police reports, before the preliminary hearing, if they have them. In the past, prosecutors were not required to do any of that um, turning over of discovery until after preliminary hearing, which made it a lot harder to really question witnesses. Because at the preliminary hearing, the prosecutor has to call witnesses to testify, and I get to cross-examine them, kind of like a little mini trial. But I wasn't very prepared in the older days because we didn't have any police reports to use to get prepared. But now we do. What and led so to that change? That was just a Missouri Supreme Court rule change. Okay. And it's important. <laughs> and so, oh, I should say one other thing about Missouri that I really love because I'm licensed in Illinois as well. And in Missouri, we can take depositions. So our discovery is not just limited to defense attorneys receiving the police reports from prosecutors. We also get to sit down with a court reporter and I get to question witnesses and they are under oath and we're just like in a conference room and they have to answer my questions. And at a preliminary hearing, the scope of my questions is a lot more narrow than it is at a, at, um, at a deposition. At a deposition, I can ask a lot more things to prepare for my case. And I will say later on after people have their trials, if they lose, they'll have an appeal. And sometimes I'm hired for that. And when I look through files, I really am amazed how many people don't use the deposition tool when they were preparing for trial. It's a great way to learn what the state's witnesses are going to say at trial. Now, in federal court, you can't do depositions without special permission. But in state court, it's a wonderful tool. And I'm surprised sometimes that attorneys practicing criminal law don't use them more. They are a little expensive. Your client needs to come up with money to pay a court reporter. And so maybe you don't depose every witness just because it could become burdensome on your client. But I think that the main witnesses should be deposed. I think it's a really wonderful tool to prepare for trial. And so you have your preliminary hearing, you do your depositions, and then you basically decide, are we having a trial or are we going to have a plea agreement? And then if you have a plea agreement, the judge will decide whether or not to accept it. The judge does not have to accept it. The judge can reject it. So you and the prosecutor and the client can come up with a deal, a plea deal, but then you have to present that to the judge. And what happens if the judge says no? I've only had that happen one time. And I actually, the prosecutor and I talked and we decided it was a visiting judge. It wasn't the normal judge in that courtroom. So we just continued the case for a few days till the normal judge came back. And then the normal judge took the plea. But what I would do if it was the normal judge sitting there, and so I'm stuck with this judge, and he's or she has told me, no, I'm not going to take that plea, then we have to go back and try to figure out something in the plea, perhaps slightly more punishment, maybe add community service or something, or a little bit of a fine, to see if that's something the judge would accept. Otherwise, we can go to trial. The other thing is the prosecutor can dismiss charges. Rarely can a judge dismiss a charge. The prosecutor is the one who decides what the charge is going to be brought, what, you know, what will the charge be? And 
the prosecutor is basically the one who decides if they're going to dismiss. And so sometimes they can dismiss and we can agree to recharge later if my client like doesn't fulfill an agreement. So we call those deferred prosecutions. And like, let's say you're charged with a, I don't know, um, property damage or something. We can say that you'll pay restitution and do community service. And then once it's all done, they'll dismiss the case. So you never actually pled guilty. We just kind of like put the case off for a while and you did these terms and then they dismissed. So that's a deferred prosecution. And some people do it where you meet all your requirements before they dismiss, or sometimes they'll dismiss and you meet your requirements. And we have like a written agreement that if you don't meet those requirements, they can bring the charges back like if the statute of limitations has expired or something like that. So I guess my point is prosecutors and defense attorneys sometimes have to be very creative. And I think that's just really important because if the end goal is justice, it's justice for victims, it's justice for the defendants, it's justice just all around. We have to be creative with um, and just creative problem solving. There's a lot of people with drug problems, alcohol problems, uh, mental health problems. And so I think a lot of the treatment courts that we've had have been really helpful in identifying some of those problems and, and helping people to like safely live in society and interact with each other. And so really addressing sort of the root cause that maybe got them into trouble in the first place, rather than just dealing with the infraction or the, or the crime. Right. Because then if you just put them in you know, prison for a year and they get out, but they still have the drug problem, they're going to continue to use the drugs and commit the crimes. For example, stealing to get money to buy more drugs, sometimes burglary, breaking into a building to steal, uh, things like that to, to purchase drugs. It's just going to keep happening. It's a cycle. So addressing the drug problem. Let me go back just a minute to clarify something. You, you mentioned that if you're held for 24 hours and not charged, they have to release you. If you're charged, is there a time limit then that is set for a hearing to determine whether you can be released on bond? Or can you be held once the charge is filed? Can you be held indefinitely until a judge happens to get around to holding a hearing? You'll have your arraignment and your your lawyer can file for a bond reduction before the arraignment if they want, or they can just set it for a bond reduction hearing at the same time as the arraignment. And I've actually, I don't know the answer to this. I've researched it and quite couldn't quite find the exact answer. But so there are a lot of victims' rights in Missouri. And one of them is notification if there's going to be a request for bond reduction. And so in some of my cases, there's no identifiable person who's considered I I don't like to say the word victim. I prefer to say complaining witness because a lot of times I think my clients are innocent and there isn't a victim, but people say victim's rights. So we'll go along with that. So the victim gets notification because at the bond reduction hearing, they have the right to let the judge know how they feel about this person. If they feel, you know, that if the judge were to reduce the bond and the person were to be released, that they are in fear for their life or something like that. And that way the judge can consider all that and fashioning conditions of release that will protect the complaining person, but also allow the person, you know, to be released and, and be productive in society. So for example, electronic home monitoring, 
that's used a lot so that the judge can say, you know, don't go within a certain distance of the complaining witness or the complaining witness's home. And then an electronic monitoring company can do an alert if the person does go within the area they're not supposed to be in, and they will send a notification to the court. And then the court maybe will revoke the bond because you weren't abiding you know, by the conditions. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Hello. My wife and I were exploring beautiful Quebec City in Canada one day, four decades ago, and hot and thirsty, we went into a tavern and sat at a table. The waiter came over and said to my wife, I'm sorry, we cannot serve you. I looked around and saw that the place was all men. What, she said with a look of horror and defiance. Oh, said the waiter, I see you are Americans. You think you have rights. Well, yes, we do think we have rights. In fact, we are darn sure of it. And I dare say that if we were in Canada today, which due to a pandemic is banning Americans generally, we would have those rights guaranteed as they are by many countries around the world that have adopted our rights in their own governance, a trend that became quite pronounced after World War II. We think about our rights as a fundamental part of who we are. We Americans do not share a belief in the same God, the same religion. We are of many ethnic and racial backgrounds. In short, we are a hot mess of people bound together as Americans by an identity that have everything to do with rights. Sometimes we find ourselves divided. I think of the beliefs we share about enforcing those basic rights, whether we consider ourselves liberals or conservatives. There is an old quip which bears some truth that a conservative is a person who has never been arrested and a liberal is someone who has never been mugged. We believe in our rights even when we are wrong. When various governments, mostly state and local, began mandating that people wear masks in the coronavirus pandemic, there were protests. The protesters were denouncing the government taking away our freedom by requiring masks. But here's a clue. In a public health emergency, the government does have the power to override our rights temporarily in order to slow or halt the spread of a dangerous virus. So the protesters, I believe, were undoubtedly wrong about their rights and were wrong about the medicine and science, but they were correct about their own feelings. The world notices this, as many countries of the world have emulated our Bill of Rights and other guarantees of freedom and individual liberty. But the world also watches, perhaps with a bit of pity, as we struggle to control a virus that does not respect our freedom. We might not know our science, but we do know our rights. And for that matter, nowadays, so do our neighbors to the North. Well, thanks for hearing me out. I'm Mike Wolf. Legalese. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about people being billed for their stays in their jails and when, they, when they're when they released or whether they can be released and whether they should, they should be held if they can't make bond. What What is the standard on charging somebody for being in jail, a financial amount? I think the board bill, I don't, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it's a set amount for each county or not. I see these things come across, you know, attorneys get electronic notices when things happen in their cases. And I get the board bills for my clients 
And so my understanding now is that they can still give you your board bill, but it's my understanding that it's supposed to go to collections if you can't pay it, that the court is not supposed to be reincarcerating you for failure to pay your board bill. And so basically, if an indigent person were to complete all the other requirements of a sentence, but the only thing that they haven't done is paid their board bill, then they are not supposed to be arrested. They're not supposed to be put in jail for failure to pay the board bill. So that's that's my understanding of the state of the law right now. What is your feeling about charging somebody who's in custody for the cost of being in custody, whether they're innocent or guilty? Uh, is is that good public policy? Well, I will say this. My clients who were found innocent didn't have to pay their board bill. So the costs were assessed to the state. So the ones who were found not guilty at trial did not have to pay. But no, I do not think that people should have to pay to be in jail. I've, I've looked at board bills and I was astonished at how much they cost. It's been a while since I've checked but it's so weird to me. So I practice in federal court as well. And my federal clients don't ever get a board bill. So when they're held pre-trial in federal court, they're held in our local facilities. So for example, my office is in Springfield, which is Greene County, and our federal U.S. Marshals have a contract with Greene County. And our pre-trial detainees are held at Greene County. So there's a whole bunch of federal uh, detainees at Greene County. They don't receive a board bill, although Greene County receives a lot more money for housing those inmates, for housing federal inmates than they do for housing state inmates in their budgets. So I I don't know. I think the whole thing's, it's just another part of the problem. I mean, these people, a lot of them cannot bond out because they're poor. So we detain them and then they get a board bill that they can't pay and they've already been in jail, so they've lost their jobs, and they're trying to rebuild their life, and it's just another bill on top of it. When the the point of putting them there was supposed to be public safety because the judge thought that they were too dangerous to be out, you know, pending uh, their trial. So I think it's like a vicious circle. And the other thing is, if they bond out, a lot of times they can't have a public defender. So a lot of times, uh, if you can prove to the judge that maybe a family member bonded you out, so that wasn't your money, they'll still give you a public defender. But a lot of times, if you bond out, they'll say, well, you had money for that, so you're ineligible for a public defender now. And so now what do they do? Now they're out on bond, but they can't afford an attorney, and maybe they lost their job while they were in. So uh, that's also part of a vicious cycle. I'm in court very regularly, and people are saying to the judge, well, I filled out my application and judge has to say, I'm sorry, you're still on the wait list. I'm sorry, you're still on the wait list. And I actually took a pro bono case the other day because a girl was going to represent herself because she was so sick of having to wait for a public defender. And I just said, judge, I'll do it because I couldn't let that happen. Very serious case. So I wasn't going to allow that, you know, to happen while I'm watching. And the judge was wonderful about it. But again, poor people, they can't afford lawyers. But if they bond out, then they they can't have the public defender. It's just, it's a real mess. Yeah, where where is the line uh, that separates the person's ability to hire somebody like you versus having to go to a public defender? And and do you ever 
tell a client, look, you probably need to talk to the public defender more than you need to talk to us because you can't afford us? I, yes, that is a discussion that we have all the time. So I don't take appointments in state court. The public defender's office, they have conflict counsel where if for some reason somebody in their office can't do one of the cases, maybe a conflict of interest, maybe there's another reason why, there are local attorneys who are willing to do conflict cases in state court. And I used to do them, but just for my own reason, I just, I didn't want to do them anymore. But I do take appointments in federal court under the Criminal Justice Act. It's the same situation. The federal public defender can only, let's say, represent one defendant on a large drug conspiracy. So the federal court has a panel of attorneys that they have vetted, and they will ask those private attorneys to take those cases. And I do take those, and I love those. And those are actually paid, I, I get paid by the court. I am paid significantly less than my private attorney, my private clients who hire me for those. But I do think it's important for all attorneys to either do some pro bono work or be willing to take the state conflict cases or the federal conflict cases. It's just my own personal belief that that's part of our duty. We're very lucky to be lawyers. And so I think we should uh, give back. I wanted to go back to the plea deals because I know that when looking at the statistics for state court, so few cases, especially in the civil arena, go to jury trial. And But I've also noticed that tends to be true with criminal cases. Is that your experience or do you see more of your cases going to trial either before a judge or jury? Sure. Very few cases go to trial. In federal court, almost never. In state court, a little bit more. What I've been finding is that a lot of clients like the certainty of the plea agreement, and there's a lot of uncertainty with a trial. And so sometimes people want to choose what they know and what they can be certain of. The other thing is, you know, so for example, in a lot of our sex cases, we do have some weird statutes that make the mandatory minimums higher. And also how it works when when someone goes to prison, they can be paroled. So in federal court, you have to serve your whole sentence. You might get some good time credit, but you're going to do at least 85%. In state court, you can be paroled. Now, if you've never been to prison, that can be a pretty low amount. Like you might do 25% or so of your sentence. If you've been to prison once, you could be required to do 40% of your sentence. If you've been to prison twice, you could be required to do 60% of your sentence. But then you get out and you're paroled. But some of our, our very serious, we have some things called dangerous felonies. And then we have, that's a statute that lists dangerous felonies. And we also have some sex crimes that have these higher parole penalties. And so basically dangerous felonies or some of the like, uh, let's say uh, rape in the first degree, sodomy in the first degree you have to do 85% of your sentence before you can be paroled. So if a prosecutor is offering, let's say, rape in the second degree instead of rape in the first degree, where, you know, it was five to life for rape in the first degree, but it is basically a day up to seven years for rape in the second degree, a lot of people are willing to take their chance with a seven-year max than a life max. And no parole restrictions on the lower charge versus the 85% parole on the higher charge. I mean, there's just so many decisions that go into plea deals. It's not just, there's just so many factors that you have to consider. Also, perhaps your client's charged with a sex crime, 
but the prosecutor is willing to let you plead to a non-sex crime. We go to trial a lot at our office because a prosecutor will not amend to a non-sex crime. And the sex offender registration list, I just think is a terrible thing. I think it has lifelong consequences that the people that Congress, when they enacted SORNA and the states, I just don't think that they have th fully thought out all these ramifications. And that, in fact, the Supreme Court of the United States just uh, reconsidered some, some parts of that because, you know, there's, it applies to people after the act, making them register. It applies to people who committed their crimes prior to that law being passed. So we have all these people being re required to register as sex offenders. And so I go to, I, I think most of my trials are sex cases because I almost think registration is worse, long-term registration than, you know, a couple years in prison. Every single day we have people who call us asking us if we can help them get off the sex offender registry. And almost always my answer is no, I can't because you're not eligible. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's another real world collateral consequence that people have to think about when deciding whether or not to plead or go to trial. And if you're, if you take a plea deal, I take it that there's, that's final. There's no chance to go back and say that you want something different where if you do go to trial and if you're convicted and you think they got it wrong, you do have the right to appeal. Is that correct? Correct. In state court, you do not appeal from a guilty plea. In federal court, you can appeal from a guilty plea. And so that's a little bit different. But primarily in Missouri state court, um, you cannot appeal from a guilty plea. Now, once you're in prison, either from a guilty plea or from a, a trial, you can file a motion. It's called a post-conviction motion. And we have two rules in Missouri. Rule 24.035 is for guilty pleas. And rule 29.15 is for people who went to trial. And that is to allege that either your sentence was illegal or perhaps you can argue you received ineffective assistance of counsel. That's basically a way to say the Constitution wasn't followed in, in your process. And so you should get a do-over because the constitutional safeguards weren't followed. And so that is not an appeal. Those are, um, they're called collateral proceedings, but that's usually what people will do if they pled guilty and so they cannot appeal. They can file, it's called a Form 40 for both pleas and uh, going to trial. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that just because a jury finds you not guilty doesn't mean you're innocent. Oh yeah, there's, um, there, I have a friend in Georgia, um, he, he doesn't have this billboard, but he was telling me about it. I think my law partner saw it one time too. There's a billboard that says, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. And it's kind of funny, I guess. Sounds um, like an advertisement <laughs> for a law firm. Yes. So because sometimes, you know, we'll have these motions to suppress and things. Let's say a police officer pulls you over and he didn't have the right to search you or search your vehicle. And so let's say he finds a bunch of drugs on you or in your vehicle and he shouldn't have been searching. We can file a motion to suppress with the court and argue that the search and therefore the seizure of those drugs was not following uh, the Fourth Amendment requirements and ask that it be suppressed. And we have won 
you know, those on quite a few, quite a few times. And then if that evidence is suppressed, the prosecutor doesn't really have much evidence at trial, unless of course you talk to the police when you shouldn't have, and then you confessed. But if the drugs are suppressed and they didn't get a confession from you, you're pretty good going to trial because they don't have any evidence. In which case, truly, the prosecutors, most prosecutors are very reasonable, good people, and they would dismiss the case. They wouldn't try to go to trial without any evidence. But yeah, we can do a motion to suppress. So really, you, you did it, but you got off on a technicality. So, so sometimes that happens. So I know that if you're found not guilty at trial, that there's double jeopardy and they you can't be essentially prosecuted for the same crime. Now, is that true if the prosecutor dismisses or does that mean that the prosecutor still has the discretion at a later date if there's new evidence to reintroduce those charges? Sure. So first, I want to clear up one thing. If you go to trial in Missouri State Court on something like, let's say, child pornography. I'm picking that because child pornography is a state crime, but it's also a federal crime. If you go to trial on child pornography in state court and you win and you're found not guilty, that doesn't actually mean that the federal prosecutors cannot charge you because they are separate sovereigns. And so also with a lot of drug crimes or, for example, a felon in possession of a firearm. We have a lot of crimes that are crimes under state law and federal law. And so if the federal prosecutors wanted to go after you after you already won in state court, technically they can. Now they have some policies in their office about when it's appropriate to do so. And so oftentimes they don't do that, but that's not double jeopardy. And so I, I think that's important. And that actually was just reconsidered again by the Supreme Court of the United States. And the, the, the opinion came out within the last few weeks. So a great dissent by like, I think Justice Gorsuch is the one who had the great dissent. Anyway, <laughs> in state court, if the prosecutor dismisses the charges, then no double jeopardy attached. And so they can always refile later. Now, if you actually went to trial and the jury was seated and sworn, and if they dismissed the charges after you've already had your jury sworn in, then they can't uh, reinstitute those charges if they dismiss. Now, if there's a mistrial by the judge, right, You, your jury's sitting there, they're sworn in, and let's say during the course of the trial, something strange happens, that maybe the prosecutor says something he shouldn't have said, or the defense attorney says something she shouldn't have said, or someone has a heart attack, then the judge might make a mistrial, and then you'll do the case again. But if the prosecutor just dismisses um, a count, then double jeopardy would attach. Are you getting more into the alternative sentencing ideas these days, because that seems to be something that's increasing in interest uh, within the criminal justice system as a way to alleviate prison overcrowding and problems like that. Are you looking at that more and more with the cases you get? Well, yes and no. Greene County has always really been a leader in treatment courts. Commissioner Peggy Davis, I want to say it was about, oh, 19, I want to say 1998 is when I want to say the Missouri, uh, the drug court started in Greene County. And so drug courts and DWI courts have been around here for a really long time. Uh, Judge Calvin Holden and Commissioner Peggy Davis. Peggy Davis became nationally um, recognized because her DWI courts were just uh, so great. 
and helping people. And so they've also added a veterans court. A lot of the, a lot of the places around here have veterans courts. I think the veterans courts are really great, you know, because people have PTSD and things after uh, they serve the country. And so um, that can cause some issues for them and they don't need to be incarcerated when they really just need some help. There's some homeless courts, Becky Borthwick in Greene County. She's a wonderful judge and she started a homeless court when she was a municipal judge. So yes, we do have these treatment slash problem solving courts popping up and I have a mental health court. I know Boone County has a great one. They're an important part of the system. And I do have a lot of clients who go into those, but I, I, I don't think they're being used as much as, as I would like, but I think there's funding problems. So we need to ask you for those who have listened to this um, and have taken the time to learn more about the criminal justice system. That's great. But for the rest of those out there, what's the most common misconception or question that you get from people that you meet about the criminal justice system? What are people think that's really, truly wrong? <laughs> I don't know if this really answers your question, but it's it's the first thing that popped to my mind. It's interesting when we have jury trials and we will ask in, we can, uh, some people say voir dire, some people say voir dire. For people listening who aren't lawyers, it's jury picking. You're picking your jury. <laughs> and we will sometimes say to people, hey, you know, our client might testify, might not testify but isn't required to, you know, the constitution says that the defendant doesn't have to testify. What do, what do you all think about that? And I'm always amazed how many people will say, well, you know, if it was me, I'd want to get up there and defend myself. And well, I just don't think I could acquit if, if I don't hear from the defendant. And so I think that a lot of people don't think about a lot of uh, non-lawyers don't think about the other reasons why a defendant might not want to testify. So for example, if you don't testify and maybe you had some priors that are even pretty old, the prosecutor can't just tell the jury about maybe some of the prior charges you have or prior convictions. Now, some of those can come in for various special reasons, like in certain sex cases and stuff. But for the most part, you know, if you had a couple priors, they don't come in unless you testify. And Maybe they're not really that big a deal, but you just think that the jury's not going to like you if, if you have those priors. And so maybe you might not want to testify. You know, maybe you don't have a good answer for why this person's accusing you of a crime. You didn't do it, but you just don't have a really good answer of, well, why would that person lie? Why would they make that up about you? So there's reasons why a person might not want to testify, but I don't think jurors, ever, uh, potential jurors, I think a lot, it's interesting to hear their thoughts when they're telling you how surprised they are that your client wouldn't testify because they would. So the other thing people, I think it's kind of funny, people will call our office and they'll say, well, I was arrested and I wasn't read my Miranda rights. And I'll say, okay, well, did you tell him anything? Well, no. Okay. So what's the big deal? Well, they didn't read my rights. Okay. Well, did you tell him anything bad? No. Okay. Well, everything's fine. They should probably should have read you your rights would have been a good thing, but you didn't say anything. So everything's all right. But it's, I think it's a thing that people get from movies. They think that like their case should get thrown out if they didn't have their rights read to them, even though they did a great job and they kept their mouths shut. They didn't say anything. <laughs> so I think that's like a common misconception that a lot of the public has. 
Got it. Great. And I have uh, one last question for you. It's clear that you're passionate about what you do. What drew you to handle criminal defense law? I'm sure that, you know, a lot of times folks might think that you're you're protecting folks that shouldn't really be protected or, you know, they're wishing that they do receive harsh sentences for the ki- the crimes they're accused of committing. So what makes you so passionate about being that voice for those? Well, I'm not sure if it was my Catholic upbringing or what. Sometimes I feel like I'm like a legal nun, but there's a guy out there named Brian Stevenson, and I recommend people Google him. He actually just won a case in front of the Supreme Court uh, for a man on death row. But he's given a lot of speeches where he talks about, you know, there's good in all of us and there's there's bad in all of us. Our worst day doesn't define us. And what I have come to find is so many of my clients, you know, they've done something very bad, but that doesn't mean that they are a very bad person. And I spend a lot of time with them. And so I get, I get to know them and they made a mistake. And sometimes it's a really big, big mistake. Uh, but that is not all that they are, is that one mistake. And it takes a lot of time to get to know people and to not judge them based, judge their whole life on one one bad thing that they did. But I'm not sure how I got to be that way. Um, I'm just, I'm glad that I somehow got here. Well, Farrell, I don't know about you, but after listening to uh, Sister Erica, the legal nun, talk to us now for the last hour, I feel much more prepared to be arrested on a criminal charge. I do too, but I hope we never have that experience. (laughs) Exactly right. You've been listening to Is It Legal To, a podcast service of the Missouri Bar, and we've been glad to have Erica Meinrich with us, a defense lawyer from Springfield. Uh, We've learned a great deal today, and we thank you for being with us, Erica. Thank you. If you're wanting more information on your rights when arrested, visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find our Law in the Courts resource guide that includes a section on this topic. And while we've been talking about your rights when charged with a crime, it's important to look at how those rights flow from our Constitution. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar's Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. Why should we care about the rights of people who have been arrested by the police? people sometimes ask. The police wouldn't have arrested them if they hadn't committed a crime, would they? The framers of the Constitution saw it differently. They had just lived through many years of systematic government oppression with the English. They had experienced firsthand the reality that people in charge of enforcing the law were eminently capable of making mistakes and abusing their authority. Because of this, they created a constitutional system that extended significant protection to those who were the target of the government's instrument of law enforcement. Much of the conversation in this episode has focused on the importance of legal representation. That is appropriate. One of the most important constitutional protections extended to the accused was the assistance of counsel. This is hardly surprising when considering the example set by one of our most revered founding fathers, John Adams, years before the Constitution was even written. In the emotionally charged period prior to the Revolutionary War, a small group of British soldiers in Boston fired upon American colonists who were protesting against British rule. 
Hundreds of protesters confronted a small group of British soldiers throwing rocks, oyster shells, ice, and coal. When a soldier was hit with a club, the soldier fired, prompting his colleagues to begin shooting as well. When the shooting ended, five colonists lay dead. The incident became known as the Boston Massacre, and Samuel Adams characterized the events as bloody butchery. Despite the uproar and passions of the colonists, John Adams agreed to defend the British soldiers on the charge of murder. This surprised and outraged many in the community who knew Adams as a patriot and a critic of British rule. For Adams, though, the issue transcended politics and popularity. Adams wrote that his choice to provide legal representation for the British soldiers was justified, quote, because it is of more importance to community that innocence should be protected than it is that guilt should be punished. The position taken by John Adams served as a fitting prelude for the constitutional protection that would be provided to those accused of crimes. Now, assistance of counsel was not just a feature of constitutional law in the days of powdered wigs and pewter mugs. In the first half of the 20th century, the Supreme Court spoke eloquently and forcefully about the importance of having an attorney. In Powell versus Alabama, decided in 1932, Justice Sutherland wrote, the right to be heard would be, in many cases, of little avail if it did not comprehend the right to be heard by counsel. Even the intelligent and educated layman has small and sometimes no skill in the science of law. If charged with crime, he is incapable generally of determining for himself whether the indictment is good or bad. He is unfamiliar with the rules of evidence. Left without the aid of counsel, he may be put on trial without a proper charge and convicted upon incompetent evidence. He lacks both the skill and knowledge adequately to prepare his defense, even though he has a perfect one. He requires the guiding hand of counsel at every step in the proceedings against him. Without it, though he be not guilty, he faces the danger of conviction because he does not know how to establish his innocence. Our program today also addressed the landmark case of Miranda versus Arizona. Miranda's importance extends beyond its ruling on the requirement that the police advise individuals of their constitutional rights upon custodial interrogation. This case also offers a veritable primer on the Supreme Court's perspective on the nature of encounters between law enforcement and individuals. While some see the interaction between the police and a suspect as a situation in which heroic crime fighters do the work of the angels against the dark forces of society, Chief Justice Earl Warren displayed the framers' distrust of armed instruments of the government and the necessity to protect the individual. Warren acknowledged 
To be sure, the records do not evince overt physical coercion or patent psychological ploys. However, in Warren's view, the Constitution prohibited more than hitting a suspect in the head with a telephone book. The Constitution also protected individuals from more subtle forms of coercion. Warren stated, an individual swept from familiar surroundings into police custody, surrounded by antagonistic forces, and subjected to techniques of persuasion cannot be otherwise than under compulsion to speak. Warren continued, it is obvious that such an interrogation environment is created for no purpose other than to subjugate the individual to the will of his examiner. This atmosphere carries its own badge of intimidation. To be sure, this is not physical intimidation, but it is equally destructive of human dignity. For the court in Miranda, any custodial interrogation occurs in an inherently coercive environment. For the Constitution to be satisfied, the police needed to take positive steps to address this inherently coercive environment. That is the reason that individuals must be advised of their constitutional rights to remain silent and to have an attorney present at questioning. It was the court's way of leveling the playing field between the police and the individual and for assuring that, in Warren's words, the statements were truly the product of free choice. Miranda and many of the decisions recognizing the rights of the accused were based upon the idea that the Constitution was written to protect the human dignity of even those accused of committing crimes. The framers of the Constitution built in provision after provision to protect the minority, to shield those for whom the majority harbored resentment and rejection. They knew that there would not be sympathy for those branded criminals by the government. And because of this, the Constitution was written in a way to challenge the government that sought to arrest, interrogate, and prosecute people for the violation of society's laws. The framers of the Constitution knew what they were talking about. They had been labeled the worst kind of criminals by the British government from whom they sought to be free. Ultimately, they applied what they learned to the American experiment and incorporated these principles into our constitutional system. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that affect you, the easier it is to make good decisions about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you.